Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's primary day in Connecticut. That means polls are open in 23 cities and towns. The really big news will be coming out of two places, Hartford and Bridgeport. Both cities' mayors have strong challengers. And in these overwhelmingly Democratic cities, primary day feels an awful lot like election day. So today, where we live in the wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we'll dig into last-minute primary news. Later, Brian Lockhart from the Connecticut Post will join us to talk about Bridgeport. But we're going to start in the city of Hartford. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We'd especially like to hear from you if you are going to the polls anywhere in the state today. If you've got good things to report, not so good things to report, we've actually got the Secretary of the State here to hear some of your uh, your complaints. She loves to do this on the air. Uh, Denise Merrill is the Secretary of the State of Connecticut, and she joins us today for a little while to talk about uh, Election Day in Connecticut. Thank you so much for, for being here. You're welcome. Nice I, to be here. I, I also <laughs> want to welcome in our regular wheelhouse guests for, for uh for Wednesday. Colin McEnroe, the host of uh, Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello there, Colin. Bernie Sanders, Mr. Dankoski. <laughs> He's got to say that's that my new greeting for people. At because, least three uh, it times. just solves the problem. <laughs> at least three times. And a very, very Bernie Sanders to the rest of you. <laughs> Susan Bigelow is here. She's columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com. She's been following races all around the state, so she's going to be with us today and tomorrow. Hi there, Susan. Good morning. And also with us is Jeff Cohen, who covers the Capital Region, Hartford, for uh, WNPR. Hello there, Jeff. Good morning. Hey, uh, Denise Merrill, first of all, let's start with you. Why are we having a primary day on a Wednesday? Yes, it is unusual. Uh, there are several statutes involved, and it's it's set in stone. So the one statute says that if the election day falls the day after Labor Day, it must be the following week. I have no idea why that's true. And the second one is that if it falls on a religious holiday, uh, then you can't do it on that Tuesday. And since the uh, Jewish holidays were this Tuesday this year, we're on a Wednesday. So does that throw anything into any sort of, I don't know, chaos for you? Are there people showing up yesterday going, I wanted to vote? I mean, what, what happens with a Wednesday primary day? Uh, we don't really know because we haven't had one in living memory. So far, it just seems like an ordinary primary day. So, you know, we haven't had anybody complaining. We, had, we didn't have anybody calling in yesterday saying, where's my polling place? So and We're going to talk about uh, turnout quite a bit throughout the course of the program, column, but I, I don't know. I just I feel like it's already the summertime still. It's a beautiful day. A lot of people probably aren't thinking about politics. And then it's on a Wednesday. I, I don't know. Does this mean fewer people even than we're going to turn out, turn out at the polls? Well, I mean, if the behavior of Hartford and Bridgeport voters, especially Hartford voters, had in the past indicated that they had some reliable of an understanding of when they were supposed to vote, then maybe you'd be a little bit worried about introducing this new wrinkle into it. But turnout in Hartford is usually so deplorable. It's hard to imagine that there's like a whole lot of people who really wedded to the idea of voting on Tuesdays because there aren't a whole lot of people who are wedded to the idea of voting. At, at all, Susan. <laughs> right. And it's I think that uh, campaigns that have actually managed to focus on turning out the vote, really, really focusing on getting people to the polls, are actually going to have a little bit more of an advantage than normal this time because it is such an unusual situation. Uh, Jeff, I was getting some texts from you this morning. I, are you hearing anything from any of the polling places so far about uh, things going well, not going so well? Um, 
minor things, it seems, and the Secretary of State can help me out, but the, uh, there was an early text that I got that said, you know, there was a, a machine problem at Hartford Public Library. That was quickly resolved. We've seen some other tweets back and forth. Nothing colossal, nothing like polls not opening like we've seen. Like we have seen in the past, or at least saw last year. Well, there was one polling place apparently in New Britain that did not open on time because the door was locked. Now, they seem to have quickly resolved it. So. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's usually can be quickly resolved with a key. Right. Um, obviously, these two cities that we're going to be focusing on, Hartford and Bridgeport, have, well, let's just say, had their series of problems with running actual, real, clean elections over the course of the last uh, uh, two cycles. Uh, let me ask you first, Madam Secretary, what is happening new in Hartford specifically because of the problems that they had at the polling places last time around? Well, specifically in Hartford, of course, we have an election monitor who is on the job um, that was um, ordered by statute, again, um, just for the next year or two to make sure that the laws are being followed, basically, so that people really have the preparation for the election. It's mostly preparatory. So we do have an election monitor. She has been on the job for um, a month or two, I think. And uh, she has been consulting. She's been down at City Hall watching both the clerk's office and the registrar's office to make sure everything's going smoothly. And are we hearing from the election monitor that things are going smoothly, at least up until this day? Um, She had to work with them because, you know, in many cases, you know, elections are local. They're locally organized and carried out. And so there are some procedures that people get used to doing a certain way that may not be exactly what they (laughs) should be. And so we had a couple of those things. I think it's actually been extremely useful to have her down there so that she can help them follow the law. So yeah, we should be clear. Um, you know, one of the ways that we gauge how well things are going is whether or not the uh, polling place in New Britain is padlocked or not. But really, there are things that have to happen well before election day. For example, one of the things we know from the last cycle is that the moderators moderators are supposed to get voting lists, I believe, by 8 p.m. Uh, the day before election day. Uh, and there's a lengthy process that goes on between campaigns and registrars of voters about who the moderators are going to be and all that all that kind of stuff. I I think it's you know it's not the kinds of things that the campaigns would be whining about to us two or three days before the election or on election day. But I'll be interested to hear afterwards how all that stuff went. Uh, my sense is that it did not all go seamlessly in Hartford. A- a- Jeff? Well, and there has been one one issue that was pointed out to us yesterday by the Secretary of the State's office in Hartford having to do with absentee ballots. And so let's just back up, and it's worth remembering, and we can have a discussion maybe about what absentee ballots are, but in a city where only last year, but last four years ago rather, Six upwards of 6,000 people voted in the Democratic primary. This year, 1,300 absentee ballots went out in the city of Hartford. That's a big chunk of the total uh, voting Democratic bloc. Bridgeport, that's nothing, baby. (laughs) That's nothing in Bridgeport. That's a ripple. (laughs) So there were some concerns about absentee ballots. We can talk about those. but it might be worth just explaining the process of an absentee ballot and the purpose. Uh, well, why don't we do that? Why don't we? Do, who is eligible to vote by absentee? Uh, you are only eligible to vote absentee if you are going to be absent from your district all hours of the polling place. That means 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Election Day. And it, it works even if you think you might be absent because, truthfully, we rely on the voters to to you know be fair about that. Uh, you can also do that if you are uh, – Unable to get to the polls if you're totally disabled, for example. And we now have what we call a permanent AB list, which means if you get a note from your doctor that you are permanently disabled, you're able to just get an, an 
absentee ballot automatically. It, I guess one question then is what is the practical that what what does that practically mean on the ground? Because we know that campaigns have big absentee ballot operations. So if that's the purpose of the absentee ballot law, that you actually have to not be able to get to the poll, uh, then you see like, you know, buildings where there are dozens of people who, for some reason or other, can't get to the poll that day. It might be worth explaining also about these buildings. Yeah. Uh, you want me to take a crack at it? And then Why you can don't sort of, okay. you? <laughs> so, it's it's civics take, live on the air. Yeah, this is going to take a couple of minutes here. <laughs> uh, comfortable. Uh, say, once upon a time, we had a problem where political operatives would show up at nursing homes and places like that, and they would, you know, we'll go into the day room and turn off Wheel of Fortune and say, look, we're not going to turn it back on until everybody fills out their ballots. The sooner we get this done, the sooner Mr. Zajac comes back. So let us help you. You know, we'll get it done really fast. Uh, and uh, if your hand shakes here, let me just – I'll guard the pen for you. So um, in order to correct that, the legislature passed a law. Unfortunately, it's not really the greatest law. The way that, the, the way that they solved this was to grant incredible wads of discretion to registrars of voters who are effectively political operatives as well. They are elected officials. They are political people. So uh, they, they are given all this control. And the control that they're given, it works this way. After a single site, be it a nursing home or an apartment building, has requested 19 absentee ballots, the next absentee ballot request triggers the ability at her discretion for the registrar of voters to designate that site for super, supervised absentee ballot voting. That, if she does that, that means that further requests for absentee ballots to that site are not um, – greeted with absentee ballots. You don't get one mailed back to you. Instead, what happens is it is announced that at a certain time, probably not on election day, at a certain time, like from noon to eight on the Thursday before election or whatever, in your building, somebody from the registrar's office is going to come in and supervise the filling out of absentee ballots, the submitting of absentee ballots. And that's how you're going to vote. So 19 of the people in your building are going to vote the old-fashioned way. Everybody else is going to vote under this supervised system. Now, the, there are many problems with this system, but one of them is because of this kind of vague, gauzy notification process, if you were, Mr. Dankowski, a Machiavellian registrar of voters in a highly dishonest city— I could not imagine such a thing. You would have the opportunity possibly to sort to— to control the flow of votes. And as Jeff has alluded to, there sometimes are thousands of absentee ballots. And so if you can get some of these, so if you are that Machiavellian registrar, it's in your best interest to designate whenever you can. Anytime you have the opportunity, designate, because now you're in control of a site where there's a lot of absentee ballots. And maybe you make sure that certain people know about this this session where they're going to be this supervised voting. And maybe some other people don't know about it or whatever. I mean, you just have so much more control. And in a close election in a place like, I don't know, Bridgeport, um, it really could make a big difference. Hey, Susan, would you like to amplify that at all before I, I, I turn things over to the Secretary of State? Well, I do want to point out that the, having these sort of partisan elected officials as registrars is pretty unusual. Uh, this is something that's not necessarily done as much around the country. And I know that the Secretary wanted to change some of that earlier on in the year, and it, it didn't come to anything. But it's it does seem like having them be elected partisan officials instead of, say, appointed town officials, uh, professional registrars, that's a really big part of the problem. I, I'm wondering if you might comment on Mr. McEnroe's uh, explanation of the system <laughs> as we have it right now. 
and uh, I'm glad he made that explanation because <laughs> I could not have done it that way. Uh, and thank you, Susan, for remembering that, yes, I am concerned about the partisan nature of our election officials. Uh, but be that as it may, there were some changes that are going to come into play and have come into play in Bridgeport already that were made um, as a result of the problems we've seen. And one of them is that I do have a little more authority to step in and advise towns and uh, election officials, including clerks and registrars. And by the way, we've had complaints on all sides on this, not just on the side of you know whether or not we have discretionary balloting sites, but also there have been uh, accusations that clerks are holding up ballots in some cases, or you know. So everyone's got an angle here, and um, it's it's difficult to sort out. Our job is to come in and say this is the law. No, you can't hold ballots until you get to that magic twenty number and then decide to, to, that something's a discretionary site. You have to send those ballots out within 48 hours of their receipt. So, you know, that's our job is to come in and say, this is the law. And that's why it's been really good, I think, to have the monitor there, because she can stop these problems before they happen, theoretically, or at least point them out to us. And we can then step in and say, this is the law. This is the directive we're giving you. You have to follow the law. If they don't follow the law, they are now in contravention of the new statute. So. Jeff? <laughs> I'm like bouncing in my chair. <laughs> so the reason we're talking about it in part in Hartford is that because the, the campaign of Mayor Pedro Cigar has filed, wrote a letter essentially to the, um, to the Secretary of the State's Office, the Election Monitor, and to the city, say, uh, raising some concerns about these, this absentee ballot process. As I understand it, uh, a number of previously designated supplemental uh, supervised balloting sites were removed from the list. Uh, so if you're a voter who for years on end has expected your ballot to come to your assisted living facility, uh, it, w- it may not come to you this time, and you may not know otherwise. That's how the, the complaint of the mayor. You may not know otherwise. Uh, and so the mayor is concerned, his campaign lawyer is concerned, uh, that this, is gonna, this could cause a problem. And his attorney is a guy named Cody Guarneri. We have some tape of him. So it really creates a concern that these apartment buildings, that uh, there are individuals there that are expecting the registrar or somebody from the registrar's office to come, will now be receiving their ballots in the mail, possibly you know in the 11th hour, and then expected to fill them out and return them in a timely manner so as to be counted. So that's that that uh, turns out I said exactly what he was going to say, and then we played his tape. But that, that's that's their concern. Uh, and then we also spoke with uh, Leon Rosenblatt, who's the attorney for, for the Democratic Registrar Olga Vasquez, uh, and here's how he saw the problem. I have heard that there is some fear that a few people may not have may have lost the chance to vote. That may be true. That may not be true. All I can say is that if the cigar campaign brings it up as an issue, it's going to have to be taken pretty darn seriously. I have heard that there is some fear, Colin, that a few people may have lost the chance to vote. He's, he seems concerned about this. Well, I'm going to promulgate a very, very simple <laughs> rule here for covering municipal elections in Connecticut. In Bridgeport, you should assume that everybody is cheating and work backwards from there. And in Hartford, you should assume that everybody's incompetent and work backwards from there. So, and so my, I don't know, looking at this, I mean, first of all, the way that it's being described, it sounds as though it, the thing that's being complained about, if I'm understanding this correctly, would be a situation where Olga Vasquez actually followed the rule correctly. In other words, if she hasn't got 20 
absentee ballot request from Site A. She cannot and should not designate Site A as a supervised voting site, even if Site A has been that in all previous eligible elections. She can't do that. She has to send out those first 19 ballots as as requested. So if that's what's being complained about, that all the people who live at, at you know, blankety-blank, blankety street uh, are used to having supervised voting, at their site, and now they're, they think they're not going to, and they have to vote for by conventional absentee ballot. Well, it's actually possible, because lightning can strike anywhere, that the Hartford Registrar actually did that part of it correctly. Um, uh, Denise Brown, I'll just I ask you to maybe clarify something you said earlier about y- your ability to essentially instruct people to follow the law. I, I guess I'm wondering why that's something that needs to fall on your shoulders? Uh, well, what's what's been happening is that since these are elected officials at the local level, if some law is not being followed, the only recourse was to go to court, which is uh, difficult, lengthy, and usually after the fact. So because we've had so many issues with, with local officials following the law precisely, and this is another one of them, and actually this whole thing may be caused by the fact that our monitor went in and said, no, that's not the way you do it. You have to follow the law. And that, of course, you know, <laughs> caused all this. Uh, who knows? But, um, you know, that that's the reason that it was put in place. We've always issued directives to people, but they never had really the force of law, because these are elected officials. They follow the law the way they see it. And Finally, someone said, well, shouldn't the advisory role be expanded just slightly to enable the Secretary of State's office to have attorneys come down and say, well, this is the law and this is what you need to do? We've been hearing a lot about this woman in Kentucky who follows the law the way she sees it. I just, I guess I just wonder about that as a, <laughs> as a way of doing things. But before we let you go, because I think we're yeah. going to turn more to the actual race in Hartford a little bit later on, I do want to ask you a few more questions while we have you here. One is just along these same lines, we've talked a bit through the issue in Hartford. What specifically are, are we concerned about in Bridgeport right now? In Bridgeport, we've had issues with uh, with polling places and with enough ballots for years. How is Bridgeport being handled this time? Uh, we have similar questions being raised about absentee ballots uh, sort of on the flip side. What's happening down there is people are questioning why there aren't enough discretionary balloting sites, as I understand the various complaints. And we've had a number of complaints come to our office and to the Election Enforcement Commission, which is the commission that really enforces all this and investigates and so forth. Um, But uh, basically, the absentee ballots, again, are the big question because they've requested something like 3,000, I think, absentee ballot requests, applications have come in. Uh, And so there's lots of questions about how could there be so many and so forth and so on. Uh, But on the flip side of that, um, a lot of those ballots weren't going out. So we did step in because they weren't going out because they were waiting to get to the 20 number, as I understand it. Uh, And they're not allowed to do that. (laughs) So we stepped in and um, an attorney met with the clerk and said, this is how it should be done. And now everyone's questioning that because, of course, she then proceeded to send out the ballots, which we told her to do. Uh, and now everyone's concerned about that. So it was it was last Friday. That was our real concern is people wouldn't be able to vote because these hadn't been sent out. It was Friday before the election. So that was my concern specifically. My only concern in all this is people, if they ask for a ballot, they ought to get one. 
Let me do the quick Kremlinology on this. And is Brian coming on later today? I, uh, Brian, Brian Lockhart is going to join okay. us in, in a minute. Yeah. He, he may be able to. Sp- well, he may spin this a little bit differently. But the way that I would uh, interpret it would be that um, the people who are concerned. Well, to put it to put it another way, um, the people who want to designate a lot of sites for supervised voting are probably the Ganem people because they have a, a little bit more control uh, over those sites through the registrar who is sympathetic to them, uh, whereas their their suspicions were aroused uh, when there were so many, when there were 3,000 absentee ballot requests, they thought perhaps that Mayor Finch uh, was flooding the market with absentee ballot requests. So neither side trusts the other. Both sides think that the other side is cheating, and very possibly both sides are right. I, uh, Jeff, quickly. One quick question, which gets to the question of, is there something, is this the way the absentee ballot process should work? And should there be, what what kind of law, what kind of fix could there be? Well, we could fix the current discretionary absentee ballot law, but of course, I helped introduce a constitutional amendment, which would take us in the direction of many other states that allow voting on different days besides election day. And for example, I'll cite Oregon, and now Washington State, California, Colorado, who just uh, do all mail-in balloting. So if you voted in the last election, they mail you a ballot, you fill it out, you, you can have anybody you want help you if you want, and then you mail it back. I have no idea how they handle this issue of the frail elderly, but, um, you know, <laughs> that's it. The, the constitutional amendment would have allowed us to go in that direction should we choose to, uh, where we have what's called no-fault absentee ballots. After all, what's happening is people are so-called voting with their feet, I guess I'd call it, they're starting to request absentee ballots if they think they're going to be out of town. And, you know, who can blame them? So it's all about that. It didn't pass. Maybe it'll come back. But I would recommend that we go in that direction. I, I was gonna, thinking you might be out of town at the end of the summertime. Probably n- n- not such a, a terrible idea. Just two quick questions for you before you go. Uh, one has to do with turnout. We talk about the abysmally low turnout for these things. Do you have any sense of what it's going to be like on this Wednesday in September with these couple of big races and, and across the state? Um, it all depends on the campaign's ability to get people motivated enough to go vote. It's going to be typically low, I think, despite all the talk. Um, and that means probably less than 30 percent. I think I'm pretty safe in saying that. I wish it weren't true. Could, could you uh, spe- specify a little bit who's eligible to vote in a primary? I think some people are probably showing up thinking that they've registered the right way with, with a party, and maybe they didn't register in time with a party. How does that work? Who's right. eligible? You must be registered with the party that's having the primary. And in, in the cities, it's definitely Democrats, but there are many other places where there are Republican primaries for certain seats. It's too late. You can't change your affiliation at this point. Um, But you can check to see how you're registered uh, at myvote.ct.gov. And lots of people are going there to find out, just in case you've forgotten, if you're unaffiliated or affiliated with the party. And maybe I'll see, since you're coming back with us tomorrow to tell us how things happen, maybe I'll save my last question for you for that. There's a big uh, study about the voting machines across uh, the country. They're starting to get old, all these electronic machines. Maybe we'll talk about that tomorrow. Denise Merrill is the Secretary of the State of Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy Primary Day. Thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, When we come back here in the wheelhouse, we'll continue with Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show. Jeff Cohen, who covers Hartford for us, and Susan Biglow, who's a columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com. We're going to be joined by Brian Lockhart, talk a bit about Bridgeport politics. That's next, Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's a primary day edition of The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Joining us is Susan Bigelow, columnist at ctnewsjunkie.com, who keeps up to date on all these little races across uh, Connecticut. We're going to find out from her what's really happening in, you know, communities that we haven't been following very closely. Jeff Cohen is here, who follows Hartford for us here at WNPR. And Colin McEnroe is the host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Colin, what's on your show this afternoon? Uh, the multi-talented entertainer Ben Vereen. I actually recorded this uh, interview studio to studio with Mr. Vereen yesterday. I have to say uh, that I don't know whether this has ever happened to you or not, but I personally have never done an interview with somebody who periodically, as I was asking a question, would start playing a spirit flute, as he put it. Uh, and so every once in a while you'll hear me start to say something and suddenly this kind of Native American-sounding music. And that's Ben. He just, you know. He just plays a spirit. The spirit moves him. <laughs> um, I love that. That's coming up this afternoon at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe Show. Ben Vereen on the show. Voters in 23 cities and towns are choosing their party's nominees for local office, including in Bridgeport, where incumbent Mayor Joe uh, Bill Finch has two Democratic challengers, uh, Mary Jane Foster and former Mayor Joe Gannam, who's staging his comeback bid after serving a jail sentence for corruption while in office. Diane Orson spoke to some Bridgeport voters just recently. Let's listen to what they said. My name is Cassandra Campbell. I think it's going to be a pretty close race, um, especially with Gannam and Finch. I just hope that Gannam, when he comes back into office, if he does, that he does what he's supposed to. Name is Andrew Morgan. I work at UPS. This year's mayor's race, I think Bill Finch is doing a good job. He's a great man, fixing up a lot of places in Bridgeport. It's not here yet, but he's building it up. Maria Inez Valle, and I am a candidate for city council. I grew up on the east side. I went to school on the east side. And when Joe Gannam was mayor, he made a difference. We make mistakes, and no one is perfect, and I believe that he has learned from what has happened. He's not gonna make that mistake again. Max Medina, Jr., Bridgeport Board of Education member, 1993 through 2009. I'm a strong supporter of Mary Jane Foster. If you're really interested in seeing Bridgeport break out of the same old habits, and if you're hoping for a Bridgeport that will finally regain the position it once had as the economic engine for this entire part of Fairfield County, then you really want to break away from the old status quo. Those are some voices gathered by WNPR's Diane Orson in Bridgeport. Joining us now is Brian Lockhart, who reports on Bridgeport politics for the Connecticut Post. Welcome back to our show, Brian. Thanks, John. Good morning. Hey, are, are those voices that we just heard, are those some of the sorts of things that you're hearing from people around Bridgeport the last few weeks? Absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. There's, um, yeah I mean, there's definitely a feeling that this is going to be a close race. Now, I should, I should note that back in 2011, when Mary Jane Foster first challenged Bill Finch, uh, at that time, it was thought it would be a close race as well. And actually, Finch did very well. Um, he garnered around... 58, 59% of the vote. She got 42% of the vote back then. Um, but right now, going into primary day, everyone expects this to be a close race between the three candidates. Uh, we were talking earlier about absentee uh, voting issues in Hartford. It's been a problem in Bridgeport as well, which we touched on. How exactly has this issue played out, and what impact do you think it's going to have? I think what it does is it, if it is a close race, if the results are close, it allows the various campaigns, whoever the losers are, to make a case that they can continue into November. Um, you know, if Bill Finch loses, his folks can make an argument that there were flaws in the absentee ballot um, system. If Joe Gannam, Mary Jane Foster lose, 
um, if absentee ballots are part of that loss, if they if they didn't get as many absentee ballots in as the winner, then they can claim that there's absentee ballot fraud. So I think it's I think you see the campaigns positioning themselves here to make post primary arguments for continuing their fight uh, on into November. You know, Brian, if we were to talk about all the ways in which Bridgeport is not like other places and then all the ways that this particular Bridgeport election is kind of different even from Bridgeport uh, elections, we'd have to preempt some of the other programming on this station. But it might be worth noting, and maybe you could say a little bit about this, that unusually, I mean, Bill Finch is now, uh, you know, a multi-term incumbent uh, facing a challenge from Joe Gannam, who has this checkered history. But Gannam's ticket actually includes, I believe, the sitting city clerk. And, and in terms of these absentee ballots, my understanding is that his alliance to the registrar, Sandy Ayala, is closer than said registrar's alliance or sympathies would be to Bill Finch, all of which strikes me as highly unusual. Yeah, no, that is correct. Uh, Sandy Ayala, her, she has not endorsed someone, but her family um, has been supporting Joe Gamm. So her ex-husband, her daughter, um, former state rep Christina Ayala, they have been working for Joe Gamm. And indeed, town clerk Alma Maya is on uh, Joe Gannam's ticket for re-election. Uh, Bill Finch, for whatever reasons, they couldn't strike a deal, and so Bill Finch has someone else on his ticket. Um, you know, I heard your conversation earlier, and what Denise said is true. There's lots of complaints back and forth. So the Finch people do believe that this was a systematic effort to thwart their absentee ballot operations. The Gannam people and the Foster people, and there's no love lost between Foster and Gannam, but they, they can agree on one thing, that they think Bill Finch and the absentee ballot system is stealing the election. And so that's, that's what you have here is this back and forth. Now, the Ganim people, um, and, I, and I have spoken to Denise Merrill about this, uh, you know, the Ganim people also argue that when the Secretary of the State sent two staffers down to try and sort this out on Thursday, that they were doing that to help Bill Finch, um, because Bill Finch has the endorsement of Governor Malloy. Bill Finch is a former state senator. He has lots of alliances up in Hartford. So there's all sorts of Machiavellian conspiracy theories as to uh, who is gaming the absentee ballot system. But one thing all the campaigns can agree upon is that somebody's doing it. My question to you, Brian, is that um, when we're listening to some of the audio there, a lot of the the Ganim supporters were saying, well, he's not going to do what he did again. He's not going to make that mistake, which makes it sound like sort of he oops stumbled into corruption there. Um, and I'm, we've always been trying to puzzle this out. Why, why do people feel that way, that he's not going to make the same mistakes twice? The biggest argument you hear is that there's going to be so much scrutiny. He's just going to have so much scrutiny. So many eyeballs are going to be on him at all different levels. Law enforcement, people he has to deal with at the state level, people he has to deal with at the federal level. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is the guy has learned his lesson. He spent seven years in prison. He has learned his lesson. Um, I know, you know, I know Colin had him on, and I, I believe Colin had some questions in his mind raised after speaking with Joe, whether Joe was truly um, penitent or not. And you do get a sense, once he sort of made this apology earlier this year, his first public apology, you do get a sense that he was done with it, that this isn't something, it's not something that he wants to continue discussing. He constantly says he wants to look, look to the future, doesn't want to look to the past. Now, that being said, He's perfectly happy to talk about the past whenever it's sort of nostalgic for the Joe Gannam years. So whenever it's talking about him keeping taxes low, some of the development, he's perfectly happy to talk about that. Um, but he tends to deflect a little more the, the talk about the um, criminal history, which has led some to question whether or not he really did learn his lesson. 
You know, I mean, I, I think what we're you, you also see here in a situation like this is that the thing that people in Bridgeport would be the least interested in right now is the conversation we're having right now because, in fact, they're not particularly interested in what outsiders think about this process. And there are right. ways in which this election lives very close to the bone of Bridgeport. This is not uncommon in gritty urban environments, whether it's Providence or Bridgeport or, or whatever, where it's like, okay, we understand this. He's a certain kind of guy that we understand as Bridgeport people. We know that kind of guy. and We know what he did in the past, and we're capable of evaluating it and sort of figuring out where it fits into our priorities and our understanding. And the last thing we care about is a bunch of people on public radio in Hartford <laughs> thinking about all this. We don't no, care that's, what they that's think. absolutely true. And, you know, the Finch, you know, Bill Finch and his folks will sort of paint the Ganim campaign with a very broad brush. And it is true that um, Ganim has some of his allies are folks that our papers written about, other people have written about, who have run into trouble over the years, um, politically and otherwise. You know, the the Finch folks will call them a um, a rogues gallery. But that being said, that is unfair because there are quite a few regular average voters uh, who are just trying to make ends meet in Bridgeport, and for whatever reason, they are alienated from the current administration. It could be they feel their taxes are too high. It could be they feel Crime is rampant in their neighborhood. They're not satisfied with the schools. But for some reason, they are supporting Joe Gannam. So, you know, it's not as if his entire campaign is filled with these corrupt individuals or folks who have, you know, uh, fallen from grace. I mean, there are, as Colin mentioned, there are a lot of just average folks in Bridgeport who have gravitated to this guy and just think he could do a better job. So what do we know about uh, the plans for any of these candidates if they lose today actually going to, to November? You, you mentioned this a little bit. Any of the three of them, they, they come in second. What happens, you think, Brian? They all have a plan B in place. Um, Foster and Ganim publicly petitioned their way onto the ballot in November as independents. It was not hard. They essentially had to get 123 signatures to do it. Um, <laughs> The Finch, the Finch folks sort of took more of a roundabout way. Um, some of their supporters had initially balked at this idea of having a plan B. And what happened was we found out afterwards that essentially, whether it was the campaign or whether it was supporters acting on the behest of the campaign, sort of cobbled together petitions to create this new party called the Job Creation Party. And they tossed up a, um, this used car salesman named Richard DeParlay who has admitted that he would support Bill Finch. And so we sort of looked at the petitions, and basically all the telltale signs were there um, that this was something that was put together in order to help Bill Finch. But that way, publicly, he didn't have to go through the whole petitioning process. Uh, so he would have to be endorsed by this new third party, which I don't see really being a problem um, because it was built for him. So all three of the candidates now have a plan B. If it's close, then... I'm fairly certain, you know, for example, Bill Finch wins, Joe Gannam is in it. The guy's just a pit bull. He's got nothing to, he really has nothing to lose and everything to gain. If Joe Gannam is in it, Mary Jane Foster is in it because her whole argument is she is different from these guys. These guys are two career politicians. She's more honest than they are. So if Gannam's in it and Finch is in it, she's in it because she wants to um, present a viable alternative. And frankly, for some bizarre reason, Gannam is out then I think Foster's in because she figures she can pick up a bunch of his votes. Now, if it's not close today, it does get a little tougher because the losers are then going to have to figure out how much money they can actually raise to stay in the race. 
Um, but there's all sorts of arguments. You know, the absentee ballot argument is one. There was mm-hmm. fraud in the system. We're going to keep going. Turnout is always an argument. Well, there's low turnout. You know, there's 40,000-plus Democrats in Bridgeport. There's 15,000 or so unaffiliated voters and then about 3,000 Republicans. So if today's low turnout, there's an argument to be made, hey, we're going to keep going to November, and we're going to hope to bring more people to the polls in November happened to unaffiliated vote, maybe the Republican vote. I, I think using the argument that there's fraud in the system is kind of like saying there's oxygen in the air. There usually <laughs> there usually is. Hey, hey, Brian, I'll ask you just one last thing. We were talking about the abysmally and traditionally low turnout in Hartford for primaries like this. What do you expect turnout to be because of all the attention being paid to this? Uh, well, you would hope that it would be higher. They have, um, there's been about 3,000 additional Democrats registered but turnout, there was a lot of attention to the to the race in 2011, and turnout back then was pretty low. It was about 21%. So if history's proven anything, turnout will will likely be pretty low today as well. You hope not, um, with all the interest around this race, and maybe we'll all be surprised. But I would I would probably bank on low turnout at this point. So uh, just two quick observations. One of them is this one of the key issues in this race is kind of that local identity issue. So yep. Finch, you know, Finch's political base for years was sort of in Trumbull. A lot of it was in Trumbull. And then he's also, you know, viewed as this guy who went up to Hartford, you know, and then came back. Uh, Foster is, you know, I think still to a certain degree something of an out-of-towner, even though she's lived in the city for, for quite a long time. Gannon really does sort of run as the local boy. That helps him a lot. The other thing that helps him is Bridgeport, like most cities, is a city of grudges. And so... If you have two issues with a candidate, you ran a completely corrupt administration in which the contracts were awarded on a pay-for-play basis and you degraded the political process in every way possible. You said you were going to hire my sister-in-law as a desk clerk in the fire department, and you didn't. Guess which thing the average Bridgeport person is angrier about? Um, and so that may actually help Ganim as well. Yeah, it could. And, you know, one other last point is yeah. – Lynch and Ganim have been ignoring Foster for most of this race. They've been trying to frame it as a race between, as a choice between two men. It was interesting a couple of days ago. The Finch folks did release a mailer, um, basically telling voters that a vote for Mary Jane is a vote for Ganim. So that may give it. You know, it'll be interesting to see how she impacts. How it'll be interesting to see the three-way race, the dynamic in this three-way race, and what Foster does ultimately. Whether she takes votes from Finch, whether she takes votes from Ganim. Brian Lockhart reports on Bridgeport politics for the Connecticut Post. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Gus. When we come back, we're going to talk more about Hartford. We're going to find out more about what's happening elsewhere in the state on this primary day, 2015. Uh, Colin McEnroe is here from the Colin McEnroe Show. Susan Biglow is here from ctnewsjunkie.com and Jeff Cohen from WNPR. It's the wheelhouse on where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to continue our primary coverage. We'll have a special Thursday edition of The Wheelhouse. I'll be joined by some of these same characters as we talk about what happened in Hartford, Bridgeport, New London, and other places around the state. You can join us tomorrow where we live. Today, we're joined by Colin McEnroe from The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, Susan Bigelow from ctnewsjunkie.com, Jeff Cohen, the Capital Region reporter for WNPR. So uh, let's get back into Hartford here, Colin. You brought in a bunch of really charming mailers here that that, uh, we've collected over the course of of the last little bit, almost all of them seemingly uh, for Luke Bronin. from from what we're understanding, not a whole lot of mail coming from Pedro Segarra, the uh, the incumbent mayor. Well, I mean, we can all talk about this a little bit. Money and resources are a big issue in this campaign. Uh, Luke Bronin has been able to raise a ton of money. I mean, kind of unconventionally, too, having, like, fundraisers in 
Litchfield, you know, where, I mean, you don't usually go to a fundraiser in Litchfield for mayor of Hartford. Uh, but so he's been able to raise a lot of money and really kind of flood the market with these. I, one thing, and I'd be interested to know what Susan's thought about this uh, would be, too. One of the things that I learned in the two Linda McMahon uh, um, elections is I think I learned it is there's a saturation point with mail pieces and anything else. And at a certain point, your postal carrier has a herniated disc and there's all this crap all over your foyer. And you really start getting mad at the person who's been sending you all these mail pieces. And I would say Luke, Luke's at peak mail, if not over peak mail at this point. <laughs> is, is there a Linda McMahon rule about how many mailers you can get? Yeah, and I think it's, like, I think it's, it's getting smaller and smaller as the amount of mail that we get decreases. If, if like uh, 20%, 30%, 40% of your mail is political campaign flyers, it's going to annoy you exponentially, I think. So there, there's a very low threshold, I think, for mailers at this point. But, but for some of these mailers, they're big mailers. And I think the content of some of them, Jeff, is really, really interesting. Of course, as we've been saying all along, Luke Bronin has, has held some very important, interesting jobs in the world, but including one in Governor Malloy's office. There's been a big question about how much the governor was going to weigh in on this race. A few of these things that we're looking at today, well, they've got pictures of Luke Bronin with the governor. I mean, is this all stuff that the governor's, you know, behind it all? Is he, does he know about this stuff? Right. Even one of them has a has a has a pull quote from the governor from, I believe, from a press release when Luke left the office. Uh, I spoke with the campaign with Bronin's campaign and they said, no, look, it's not like this was done with the governor's consent or uh, notice or anything from the governor. It's just this is, you know, in their mind, this is their record. Obviously, though, they are sending out flyers that try to uh, bolster Luke Bronin's time at at the state and his relationship with the governor, regardless of whether or not the governor himself has entered this race politically. Does that help, Colin? Does it help in the city of Hartford to have, you know, whether or not it's a picture of your candidate next to the governor of the state, uh, given the governor being in a little bit of a battle with Pedro Segarra over resources for Hartford? Yeah, I I think, I mean, first of all, the Segarra campaign has tried to kind of hang Malloy on Luke at certain times. There was a fairly bizarre web commercial where (laughs) among the things they accused Luke of was turning away uh, migrant children uh, from from, uh, Mexico and Belize and places like that uh, and not allowing them sanctuary here. That was, of course, something that the Malloy administration had decided to do. There just isn't a particle uh, of any reason to to suspect that uh, Luke Brunner was involved in that. But, I mean, it was wasn't explained that way. It was like, he wouldn't let those children in. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, whether or not it's helpful to be associated with Malloy, it, it might be in certain neighborhoods, but it's not something that the Bronin campaign has played up too much until just recently. How, how do you see this, Susan? Well, it's it's interesting. The um, Governor Malloy is always very interested in local races, it seems like. He's always You'll you'll see him go all around the state uh, on election day. He's always very interested in this stuff, and we haven't heard him complaining at all about being featured in in Bronin mailers. And you know, he's he really doesn't seem to want to touch that at all. But it's it's he's not complaining about it either. There's another interesting story that came up this week, Colin, and it it actually it has to do with Luke Bronin's wife Sarah, who of course is a UConn law professor. She's on the board of planning and zoning. Uh, our friend Kevin Rennie uh, ran a piece this week in which it seems as though she sent an email from her state email account that looked an awful lot like it was asking people to do stuff around the Luke Bronin campaign. Yeah, there's two things I want to say. First of all, Bernie Sanders. And second of all, Sarah Bronin is a really smart and capable person. Um, but 
she has a little bit of a ready fire aim quality to her at times. Uh, she she is really really smart, and she's I think smart enough to know that she shouldn't be conducting anything resembling a campaign activity on a public email account. You just can't do that. I mean, it's, it's you know it's wrong. It's against the rules, and and it does appear. Uh, I mean, we, I don't think we've had time to really super confirm this beyond sort of what's been reported in Kevin Rennie's blog, but it does appear that that's what happened, and you're really not supposed to do that. That's right, and, and um, she's been – she has – there's that issue. She has been fairly high profile to date uh, in the campaign. She was in a – there's a story in The Current, a great story over the weekend about the two candidates and their respective weekend campaigning activities – uh, and at one point, uh, there's a scene where Sarah Bronin goes up and sort of gets in Mayor Segarra's face about, a, about a, a flyer he was handing out having to do with the Bronin's decision to put their children in private school and not in the city's public schools. Uh, so th- that is sort of an interesting race dynamic that we don't often see. We don't often in Hartford politics see spouses getting that much, you know, airtime. But she's not just any spouse. First of all, she's the chairman of the Planning and Zoning Commission in Hartford. That's another thing that's come up and came up on your show. And one thing about Sarah Bronin is she, when I say she's sort of a ready, fire, aim kind of person, she's not going to like run this stuff through Andrew Doba or whoever's handling communication. She's going to go right at it. And even during your show, when Sagara was on, she was live tweeting your show on her Twitter account going, well, I'm glad to see that Mayor Sagara thinks maybe I'm a little bit qualified because I'm actually pretty damn qualified. You know, and so usually if you're running a campaign, you don't want the candidate's wife doing stuff that's off script. You try to manage everything. Good luck with that. Good, good luck with that. Jeff, quickly, anything else that you're looking at today? I mean, there's obviously a lot of issues. We've talked about absentee ballots. We've talked about the polling places working turnout. What else are you looking at today in Hartford? Well, you know, to the to the money issue, we haven't spoken a lot about cigar mailers. We haven't seen a lot of lawn signs. I don't know that he really has the money to do that. I think what they're choosing to do is to spend their money on the ground game, paying people to get out the vote on the day of the election, organizing people, renting vans, getting people to vote. Uh, the question is, will that work? What does turnout do? Well, if it's, you know, I hear things like, well, if it's low turnout, that's bad for the mayor. Uh, alternatively, if it's low turnout in the city's west end, that could be bad for Luke Bronin. Here we are. We have to remember that this race, the mayor has made this a race about identity, not just about politics and management experience, of which the mayor has a lot, although uh, he's been criticized for, for much of it. Uh, and Luke Bronin has very little. Uh, But what the mayor has said is this is an us versus them. This is Latinos versus the rest of the outsiders. uh, And they're trying to take City Hall away from us. And the question is, will that motivate enough people to come to the polls to uh, to save his job? It does seem like he's trying to tap into sort of national conversations and currents about race and identity and who we are. And it it is interesting to point out that Sagara is the only we're talking about sort of major city democratic candidates he's the only one who's who's not white and that's pretty interesting especially when we're talking about Bridgeport and New London that's that's very that's very odd to me to see that that he's the only person out there who is who is not white and i i don't know i think that that resonates with some people I don't think it resonates with everybody. I think that what's on people's mind more are these sort of fundamental concerns about crime and trash pickup and all this other stuff. Yeah, I mean, the great, the great big question is, I mean, you have a city that I think most people would acknowledge. It's a pretty dysfunctional city. It's not run, running very well. Most of the, many of the departments are in chaos. Um, the question is, what skills does a technocrat, a, a smart, young, 
you know, mer meritocracy product like Luke Bronin? What skills does he bring to a situation like that? Um, there's a, it, and it almost comes down to whether you believe those things are useful. Uh, are those useful things in an environment like this one, or is this environment not amenable to the kinds of skills that Luke Bronin has accu accumulated over this, you know, rapid ascendancy through life? And I, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that question, it, but it's it, really interesting. And what's really interesting, too, though, Colin, is, is the idea that tomorrow we, we may end up with Joe Gannam having won a Bridgeport nomination and Luke Bronin having won a Hartford nomination, and we're talking about two very different ways of getting to those those nominations. Susan, I have to ask you, we just have about a minute and a half left, but you, I mean, you follow all these races. We've talked about two out of 23. Is there anything else happening today that's going to really be interesting? I know we'll talk New London tomorrow, but what else? Well, there's something going on uh, in West Haven. There's a mayoral primary there. Uh, the incumbent mayor is being challenged by a fairly strong challenger. Ellington, uh, the town of small town of Ellington, had the incumbent first selectman was not endorsed by the, the, the party, by the Republican Party. Um, I believe it was the Republican Party. And as trying to, to, to win their seat back. Uh, East Windsor, same kind of a deal where there's a Republican primary today. Um, there's one going on in Summers where uh, between a petitioning candidate who's sort of run for a whole bunch of things against the incumbent. Um, Killingworth, uh, down there in the woods and near the shore, there's, um, <laughs> there's a sort of perennial uh, challenge and the, there's a sp split in the Republican Party um, between Republicans and conservatives, the conservative bloc or whoever they are. And they, they are challenging. Once again, they, they have not been successful over the last however many primaries they have run in, um, but they are, they're hoping for the best, I suppose. So uh, that should be interesting. Kelly, I love Kellingworth. It's a beautiful little town. It really I is. You say d down in the woods. It is. It's a nice little wooded it place. It sounds like it's like squeal like a pig or something <laughs> like that. I mean. No, it's, it's the nice kind of woods. <laughs> it's the nice kind of woods. Uh, Susan Bigelow will be, pretty <laughs> will be back with us again tomorrow. She uh, writes a column for ctnewsjunkie.com. As always, thank you, Susan. Thank you. Thanks also to Jeff Cohen. He covers Hartford and our region and healthcare and a lot of other stuff for WMPR. Have a fun day covering primary day, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Uh, Colin McEnroe is the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Listen in this afternoon with the great Ben Vereen. It's primary day. Vote if they'll let you. <laughs> we'll be following it all day long. You can find out more on WNPR.org slash where we live. The Wheelhouse, always produced by Tucker Ives. With help today from Betsy Kaplan, Lydia Brown, Josh Nalea, Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live.